tab, you know, due date today is basically two mouse clicks away now. And just kind of like, on the calendar, it's going to come quick. Cabbage. I think that was for me. It's going to probably come very slowly for her. Cabbage size. <laughs> She's pressing me to have the uh, pool ready so that she can uh, start doing her calisthenics in the water there. She was told that that's a very good exercise when she's yep. pregnant. Yep. So. Yep. So. And her alternative of walking around the neighborhood in 90 degree heat doesn't sound nearly as good it's as a little tough. in the pool pool. i got to admit, yeah. that's a little tough. What about underwater birth? Well, her sister's done that. Um, All of them. Morgan didn't do it, though. I think just Christine. I thought she did it the second time. Did Morgan have a water birth? Uh, in the bathtub. technically. I mean, she was in the bathtub, but right. yeah. It's not what well, wasn't underwater, which is different from Christine, who was literally underwater. And Laura. Oh, true. Yes. I don't even want to ask. see all coming. But, well, you know, what do I know? Bless you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to be engaged with the words of Torah. O Lord, our God, we ask that you make the words of your Torah sweet in our mouths and in the mouths of your entire people, the house of Israel. May we, our descendants, and the descendants of your people, the house of Israel, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed you, O Lord, who teaches Torah to his people Israel. Blessed you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed you, O Lord, who gives the Torah. Mr. Martin, I was counseled that uh, your comments were slightly uh, slightly muted last week and that uh, either more volume or more speaking is necessary. I'm only delivering the message. You can sit here. <laughs> you can sit, yeah, right there in front of the, uh, front of the mic. Okay. Uh, if you hadn't checked, the, uh, the next uh, lesson is up there, and uh, we'll be doing First Thessalonians for next week, the entire book. Um, I was um, very familiar with First Thessalonians. Five chapters, not a big deal. Uh, I've been quoting... Uh, chapter 4, verse 13 through 18 for a, a, a very, very long time. Um, but I didn't realize how easy to read the, the letter is. Sure. Um, if, you haven't, if you haven't jumped on it yet, um, read it through a few times. I think you'll do fine. And I'll try to walk you through a couple of things there. Um, I've got a theory about First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, that'll start to come out as you read through the study guide. But, uh, Curious to, to get your thoughts on that, but that's not tonight. Tonight, Acts 17 and uh, 18. I hope you enjoyed the uh, the uh, brief thought of the Godfather at this one. You did Apollonia. Yeah, that's right. Yes, that's right. After uh, passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia, yes, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. At least that's what this version has. I'm reading from the Messianic Jewish Shared Heritage Bible. Yeah. So it's uh, using the Living uh, Version translation. I've got something similar. Synagogue of the Jews. Yeah. I wonder is the now mine is not um, in italics. I don't know. No, no. no. Y Yehudi is there. Yeah. Okay. But I mean that's the point. Synagogue. Is not a Jewish concept in Biblical Greek, and it, it wasn't. It's simply a gathering of people, and usually in a building. A church is normally the same word. Yeah, ecclesia is is you know a a, a, a an assembly. Yeah, 
and it's a it's a similar type of thing, but it's only people where the synagogue implies a building in which they are gathering. Although I want to say there are there is an occasion at some point in which the word synagogue is used, in which the well, church is translated, and it actually is the word synagogue or synagogue. Yeah, synagogue. Right, and then we have synagogue of Satan later on mm-hmm. uh, in uh, Revelation, right? So. At any rate, this um, is a synagogue of the Jews. This is a synagogue of the Jews, as opposed to a synagogue of, you know, heathens, pagans, or uh, Italians, who might have been around. So, as was his custom, Paul went to the Jewish people, and for three Shabbats or Shabbatot, he debated the scriptures with them. He opened them and gave evidence that Messiah had to suffer and rise <coughs> from the dead. So, just out of curiosity. If you needed to do that, what would what would you say? Everybody realizes here that he did not have any apostolic scriptures, right? So, from the Tanakh, Genesis one to let's see, I guess in our Bible that'd be Malachi five, right? In the Jewish or Hebraic order would be to uh, Second Chronicles. Isn't that the end? Second Chronicles, yeah. yeah. So that would be part of the writings. So where would you go? What, what comes to mind? I would guess it would be in the prophets, but I can't. Think prophets, I think. Psalms came to my mind. You know, stuff like that. Shows right? up there. Yeah. Isaiah 53 has that language in it, too. Yeah. Um, now, Isaiah 53 probably would have worked back then. Yes, it probably would. Today, have. right? You know, so no, no, come on. Um, there also, you could also make there's a lot of, um, depending how creative and midrashic you were able to be, a lot of allusions there with with Joseph, um, okay. and yeah. also with Moshe and his um, his insistence on you know uh, erase me from the book. Right. Good. Um, Good. So Isaac. there's a couple of different ones, and then of course Isaac, big, right? The Akeda. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, just a little trivia point, the Akedah is the most read passage of scripture throughout the biblical year in an Orthodox community. It's read all the time. All the time. So the Akedah be good? You know, that's a, that's a biggie. That's a biggie. Um, my son who was dead to me, your reference to Joseph, sure. Um, Psalm 22, nice. The Orthodox belief is that, I, that uh, Isaac did die. Absolutely, sure. And Paul, even I mean, midrashically, you know, it'll it'll they can play it either way, right? I can argue he did. You can argue he didn't. Then we can flip sides, right? And what is um, but Paul uses that midrash hmm. to teach, and in we'll see that later on. Paul is the writer of Hebrews. Oh, right. Um, I think it's Hebrews that uses that. Right. You know, so you know, Abraham received. His son back, as it were, from the dead. What, what's right. he talking about? It's, or it's as that, in a parable. Yeah, in a parable. The, um, then there's, I think it's Psalm 18 that has the, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't um, know if it's 18, but yeah. Just so you can Right. And then uh, the, the, the disciples um, really liked that one. They used that one a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeshua's favorite one, and the one that I think Peter pulls in Acts 3, is also the reference to. My Lord said to my Lord, yeah. sit in my right hand. Sit in my right hand. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the things that's interesting about, of course, quoting scripture back then, is you didn't necessarily have to know what the chapter was. 
You just had to be really good with the quote. That's true. And a lot of times, you could quote it the way your friends always said it. And everybody knew what you're talking about. Because the word to word, word for word thing wasn't as important as you getting the whole concept and idea. Why didn't you have to quote chapter and verse, you young guy? Why did no one ever quote chapter and verse in the Master's day? Because it was common use. No, although it was common. Because it wasn't broken up like that. We didn't have chapters and verses back then. It was done by a monk on this wall. You know, I, I like how Yeshua basically doesn't go to a, a direct quote, but he goes to one of the most frequent phrases in all of the Tanakh, which is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Isaac and of Jacob. Right. Not and the God just, of the dead, but well, of the just, living. Exactly. It just lays <laughs> it out like, I mean, obviously he's not the God of the dead, so I guess they're still alive. And you're like, what? Whoa. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. yeah. That's oh, good. For the resurrection, yes, it's a very good one. There are actually, I, I would go so far as to say, well, there's probably a similar number of proofs for resurrection as there are for proofs of Yeshua's or the Messiah's suffering. Um, but neither one is particularly fleshed out, which really to me makes, when you read the Talmud and you think about the fact that some of the comments that they're making about Messiah that are actually in the in the midst of the fact that they're trying to argue with Christianity. Or so against Christianity. Uh, yeah, so they're really not using very many of the same passages you mentioned as if 3 kind of gets chucked, at least right. publicly. Right. Internally, it's not as much, but out, outside, they don't really use it. Um, that just makes it all the more impressive, because that means some of the stuff they're pulling, they're pulling really nuanced verses. I mean, yeah. I gave you the ones that are kind of standing out and are sort of obvious, yeah. and the ones you see quoted by the apostles the most. But in the case of, like, if you read the book of Hebrews, you get a better feel for yeah, where, they were where they're going from. And it's, they're, they're, like, so they're just pulling stuff, like, one verse here, half a verse here, splicing them together, getting those, that's what we're talking about, Isaac and Joseph and, and Moses. They're using examples, and they're extrapolating that, okay, well, this is a messianic-like character. Right. Well, then Messiah's going to do things like him. And when they said it was a messianic-like character, and Messiah's going to do stuff like him, they called it a messianic passage, and we picked all of that up in our own Bibles. That's how we know that they're messianic passages. Um, Daniel 9 comes to mind, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I will be cut off. I think it's important to note, you asked the question in the study, the prince. why the, the Jews kept chasing Paul out. Yeah. Well, I think what, it, was, what, was, what was giving them all the answers? Well, it's interesting because I think that sometimes the answer is two different things, and it depends on the community, it depends on their, their issue. But I think it's important to note that up until about the middle of our lesson this week, I think maybe the middle of 17, um, and I don't remember exactly where it was, it may have been, maybe even been 18. Um, yeah, I think it was actually in Corinth. So this was, yeah, it was in, in Corinth. Corinth yeah. So in 18. Um, up until that chapter, Acts chapter 18, you almost never, if ever, see the Jews get upset about his teachings regarding Messiah. There's no angst about Yeshua being the Messiah, about him raising from the dead, about him dying for his uh, sins. All that stuff is just, you know, standard discussion. It's like, sure, some people believe that. Fine, yeah. let's talk about it. Yeah. Sometimes they're excited. Whoa, we haven't heard that before. That's cool. Yeah, you look in 17.5, some a of the Jewish people became jealous. 
and it comes right after it says a great many of the devout Greeks. This ties back into what we saw at the very beginning of, of Paul's journeys, um, where um, I can't which city it was in now, where he goes and he goes and he does his little speech. Everything's great. They invite him back. He comes back, and the Gentiles show up. Yeah. Then things aren't so great yeah. anymore. Yeah. That's right. Now I, I noticed that uh, there was no small number of leading women. And it reminds me of the fact that the women were following after the master, and some of them were wealthy, and were helping to provide for the master and so forth. And I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't doubt that some of these leading women uh, would be potentially moving their money uh, based on what they were hearing there. And they got all upset and jealous. These men have upset the world who have these men who have upset the world have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Yeshua. Yeah, important, I think it's important to contrast their, their reasons for being upset with Paul and the reasons they give to the Gentile leadership in the city where they want to stir up a riot. That this is a great example of that. They seem, it says they're jealous. Right. I think it's very probable they're jealous over the fact that the Gentiles are being included. They don't want, they don't like that. Or they might be jealous because of them following Paul. Right. Either way, it's it's more of a, it's a different issue. But all of a sudden, when they're trying to stir up the locals who don't care about Gentile Jewish issues, they go to the same thing that the, that the Sadducees went to when they were accusing Yeshua the first time. They all of a sudden, they, they're like, uh-oh, this guy's going to be king. It's an authority problem, yeah. Which, of course, the Jews have no problem with, but they're acting like they do because they know that's going to get them support it's from exactly the locals. Right. Yeah. And I think that's important to point out because, unfortunately, throughout the, the, the stigma in Christianity is that the Jews then are like the Jews now, and they have a problem with Yeshua being the Messiah. And that really wasn't the case. That's anachronistic. That's exactly Back right. then, it wasn't that way. Yeah. And that's one reason why I think, too, that um, there is more hope that if we properly showed who Yeshua was, to, is what was is today, that Jews would be okay with him. Yeah, we, they'd have a better reception. Mm -hmm. They may disagree. Right, they, they may would, agree, but it but wouldn't be last of the dialogue. Right, yeah. And now, exactly. now the dialogue is difficult. Um, I don't know. I was having just read Thessalonians two, three, four hundred times. Um, I just wonder how they would have felt because he doesn't mention it in the, in the letter. In 1711, Paul is now with Silas gone to Berea and uh, once again makes their way to the Jewish synagogue now, the folks in Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. I just don't, it's like talking about people that live in Gastonia, you know? It's just, I wonder how they feel about being talked about all the time, or being known as not being as nobly-minded as the next town over. That's, uh, that's got to be tough. And why? Well, they search the scriptures, right? And... Uh, you know, your father chose his uh, website to be Bereans online, where these things were searched out. You know what's amazing? 
this was the first year reading this that I realized that they were Jews. Who were Jews? The Bereans. I always assumed the Bereans were the Bereans, kind of like the Thessalonians were the Thessalonians. And you, Paul is so into the Gentiles, it's like I just kind of assumed that they were Gentile. And reading it this time, it's like, oh, the Jews, these Jews, these Jews, the Berean Jews, were more noble than those Thessalonica. They were examining scripture daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed. Yes. Many of them. I mean, I think again, the, trying to get back to what we were saying earlier, we really have to break out of all the stereotypes of the Jewish people in the first century right. because these Jews who actually studied the scripture had no problem with what Paul was saying. Exactly. They agreed. Now you tie that with significant portion, I would say, right? And tie that back to the, the day of Pentecost, which, by the way, is two weeks from tonight. Right? Um, we had, Thousands. what, three, four thousand, two thousand? Three, three thousand, the first thousand, four thousand, you know, so. And then got, um, James, at the end of Acts, is telling Paul there are myriads, which yeah, is 10,000. Yeah, so we got a lot of folks. It's interesting when the Jewish people of Thessalonica learned that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea, they came there too, agitating <laughs> and inciting the people. It's like, no, 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 this, And it's like they're just not only running them out of town, but running them out of the next town as well. So uh, they put them on a boat. This time on the boat worked out well. The next time on the boat did not work out too well. Different, different. Okay. I, I, I'm sorry, I keep coming in, but I, I love this next verse, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Athens is like the capital of idolatry. That's it. Yeah. Athens is not a Jewish town. Athens is as pagan and Greek as you could possibly be. But but Paul does that. That is that's not enough for Paul. Like Paul's not like, well, it's okay. They're they're pagan Greeks anyway. Right. It's like it really bothers him bother. that this now, is going on. Now, so he proceeds to then go. He goes to the synagogue. He always does. Right. So that's just as a as a quick pause. There were Jews there and God fearers. But then it says he goes to the marketplace, and it's, I feel like this is a really important thing to highlight. He's not going into Walmart. Or standing in a street corner outside of CVS handing out tracks, or is he going into McDonald's and stuffing tracks into the napkin holders? Right. Or but, standing in front of the bank on the corner. Right. He's it, the marketplace in Greek society was a place of debate. Yeah. It was a it was a, in the open squares and whatnot. I mean, especially you talk about Epicureans, Stoics. So he's actually arguing with people who are, um, uh, if I understand correctly, are actually rivals with each other. Um, so we're talking about he's just joining in to philosophical debates. Today, you might say something like, uh, you know, if he were going to go preach at the public universities. I mean, like, he was going to the places where people already were arguing. Even, even that's gone. Now. That would be a little scary nowadays. Safe space. But I mean, like, today, like, if you think about, like, where's a place, you know, he was going on the, on the talk shows and arguing with people there. I mean, a place where debate was common, where it was expected, right. where people were already discussing philosophy and the meaning of life and whatever else. So I think that's a big difference from, we see the word marketplace, he's not interrupting <clears throat> normal people to try and shout at them about Jesus. He's, he's going to where, like he's doing with the Jews. With the Jews, he's going to the synagogues. They're already seeking after God. 
here he's going to find the Greeks in a similar situation. And, and you're right. And I think as, as my page turns here, uh, 19, verse, uh, what are we, 17, 19, 20, 21, that in there, he has made just a few statements, and obviously not in a derogatory or antagonistic way, and they want to hear him. So they take him. This is not the way he's been taken other places before. <laughs> they, they escort him or invite him, as it were, to the Areopagus so that he can speak. And it says he stood in the middle and started to talk. Men of Athens, I see that in all ways you're very religious. <laughs> now, I think in this day and age, we should be able to do exactly the same thing. No reason to yell and scream. No reason to tell somebody they're going to go to hell. It may be true. I may hate your sneakers and love your shoes. I don't need to mention it necessarily. <laughs> nice socks, by the way. Um, these are my new Toms. Yeah. So uh, I, I think it's an, as you were pointing out, it's an art that's been lost. Not just the place, but the method. And I think if there's anything that we would all agree on is that we should be able to argue or defend our faith in dialogue, in discussion, or what lawyers would call argument. And sadly, um, the recidivism rate, which means the falling away rate for you short people, um, when, you, when our kids are going to college, is, I mean, almost 100%. If you send your Baptist daughter, or your Methodist daughter, or even your Catholic daughter, or son, off to college, almost 100% guarantee they will forsake the faith that you tried to teach them in all those years. It is amazing. Unless they're going to, and many times it doesn't even matter, uh, Liberty University or someplace that's strong in faith, um, still, um, the way the professors are, the way they are talked down to and belittled is, uh, is extraordinary and it's sad. So if anything we need to double down our efforts to make sure that these young people understand their faith and that it is grounded in reliable argument, not specious pie in the sky fluff. Amen? Comments? I, yeah, I think the... Uh, You're going to have to speak up. Well, oh, I, I think that that's an excellent point because uh, um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is really big on talking about how how strong your faith is, is, is really a, a, a barometer of that, is how comfortable you are around other religions. And I think Paul is a great example of that. He's able to pivot depending on who he's talking to. He, moved from he the is synagogue so comfortable with his faith. And, then and he is so understanding of the way that his faith fits in to other religions right. that he is able to speak to virtually everybody yeah. and uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs encourages parents nowadays to be the same way with their kids to not shelter them from other religions but to kind of point out the similarities of other religions but then also the differences so right. that they're not surprised when they get out in the world because I think Judaism sees that rate in their own religion as well, yeah, not of people forsaking the faith. But yeah, and and part of that is being able to do similar to what Paul does. Yeah. 
where you're able to interact with all different kinds of people, but you're the one influencing them, not the other way around. That's right. It's an interesting um, example of Paul's upbringing. You mentioned Jonathan Sachs. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is, an, is a, um, I wouldn't say an outlier, but pretty close to in the amount of time that he will quote from like, sources other than Judaism, uh, particularly other religions, other things. Paul's quote here, uh, even as some of your own poets say, also talking about the Athenian, the Greek poets, um, ties back into the tradition held around his education. So traditionally, Gamaliel, who was his mentor, his teacher, um, tradition holds that he would t uh, encourage his students to study Greek philosophy and the types mm -hmm. of things, um, which made Paul uniquely qualified sure. to present to the Gentiles, and in this case, to argue with the Greek philosophers and then to try to make a presentation to the pagan Athenians. Um, but it's and, an interesting and, and situation. And he didn't have to study on it, to your point. He just finished talking in the synagogue. He goes to the marketplace, yeah. and and he's ready to to, to duel, and yeah. he's prepared. So, a more a more closer, not necessarily modern day, but a closer example to us would be Rambam. He is big yeah. in quoting Aristotle and a lot of Greek philosophy, but yet his thirteen principles of faith align very closely with ours. He specifically references the coming of Messiah and the resurrection right. as being tenets of the faith. So there, there's not you know, any kind of poisoning from certain Greek philosophies, but yet he still acknowledges several of the, the things that are similar. His guide to the perplexed was a, a bit out there. Almost got him excommunicated. But yeah, other than that, he's obviously well-rounded in what he was teaching. And as a physician, brilliant. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's good. Good, good, good. I like it. So, um, I'm stuck on what you were saying about our children. I think that another thing is that we need to help them recognize when God is active in their life and does things. They need to recognize experiences that they have with God and when you're growing up, I don't think you recognize it as easily, but we can sometimes see, hey, I want to let you know that God just showed you that, or God mm -hmm. just guided you in this direction, mm -hmm. and if you need to see it more clearly, let me show you what I think I'm seeing, because if our kids don't have any experiences with God that they recognize as experiences, then that also makes it difficult for them to stand up against any kind of debate or that, that, that is true attack. because a lot of times what draws people to other faiths is the experiences that they have with them mm -hmm. so knowing your own experiences with your own faith will further defend against other experiences in other faiths that's a good point yeah, I think those experiences are often external I mean you know God is a personal God that meets us in our heart and in our relationship and other religions don't have that the same way. I mean, if they do have an experience with a God, a small g God, it's not going to be a positive experience, a kind Or if it is, kindness. it's because they're stoned. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, the thing is, I think it's really interesting to, to, to use that as an example because I think experience personalizes it so much, a personal experience, because one of the things, I mean, Every, everyone, anyone who's in another religion has the potential for a personal experience that they may attribute to their false deity. Um, but, but, and you can't necessarily argue with what that means to them. 
you can argue with other elements of their faith, but that element, they have to decide whether or not that's relevant. Sure. And I think that that's actually very powerful in the, I mean, this is kind of an odd reference, but in the, um, in the movie, it's based on the book Contact, the, the, the debate, that the guy who wrote it is actually an atheist, but he ultimately concedes that religion, he can't explain away their experience. He can argue that they're foolish, but he can't say they didn't. That he he can't argue with them that they saw what they saw, so to speak. Mm. So that I, I think that that also is true for us individually. I know that for myself, um, in in wrestling with certain elements of my faith, um, one of the things that I that did come back to me. I think about just a, you know, a couple of years ago, I had a long discussion with other people about Yeshua being the Messiah. Mm-hmm. One of the things I, I I didn't really waver on that, but I think one reason why is because it's like I'm here because of Yeshua. My experience with God is because of him. That can't, if, if, that, if, if he's not the Messiah, that means that all of that was fake, and I don't believe that's true. And that's just a small piece. Obviously, scriptures are much deeper and are more poignant than that. But, but that little bit gives you that emotional umph, so to speak, to help you, um, to help, help you focus on the, the facts and the biblical proofs Rather than being dissuaded, as you're talking about, by or you were saying, by examples right. of other people, emotions from other people. I, I think, uh, you know, growing up in the church, we would call this our testimony, you know, and uh, mine's pretty dramatic, uh, and I I used to be compelled to to, to tell the story a lot, um, but I've come to recognize that what you just said is exactly right. The fact that I was a horrible man self-centered, selfish, and all that kind of stuff does not bring my, my father glory and is not going to help you because you may not be a horrible man. And you're sitting here looking at somebody who's fairly sane and sitting still as opposed to uh, what, what may have been uh, had he not saved me. So um, while I, I don't give my testimony as frequently as I used to, there's, there is not an argument that can be had that would dissuade me. Right. That the power that changed me from the inside out, and I'm talking about physical desires and all kinds of mental, everything, it's just not possible that it was not God. Well, and it's interesting that you say that because it's like the experience, ironically enough, your negative experience and the transformation is a buffer, or a buffer for your own faith. But then the transformation element the life you live today is the buffer for ours because one of the things that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says in his teaching to parents that was so good is he's like you want your kids to love God and to want to keep the commandments you have to love God and want to keep the commandments exactly otherwise right. they'll pick up on it whether yeah. whether you're whether you're showing with a bright sunny face or not if it's not real they're going to know that's exactly right and they will return to that faith that's right yeah. right all right, this is good. Uh, good discussion here. The comments uh, from the man with the uh, most sons in the world. No, not at this point. Not at this point, Roger. That. Not at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Just a quick plug. Um, I haven't read in a long time, but one book that I really like. If you're looking for apologetics type thing, um, I really enjoyed the Case for Christ. The rest of the series, not so great, but that one was a really good one. Just to give you some um, facts that you can throw in to your biblical and experiential faith. There you go. Good. Well, right. movie, yeah. Movies coming out on that sometime. Mm. Yeah. 
Lee Strobel was the author. He's a journalist, so he goes and he interviews all these different experts. Um, and it was some really good information. All right, chapter 18. Paul is, uh, I gave you the map in the study guide, is, uh, you know, coming across the top of uh, Turkey, what, what is nowadays Turkey and then called Macedonia and so forth, Galatia. And uh, Athens, he's now in Greece, and then uh, moves over to Corinth, and he'll end up in a suburb of Corinth, uh, Centuria, in a, in a little bit. But there he found a Jewish man named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. This is, I think, one of the only times that Aquila's name appears before Priscilla. She evidently was the speaker of the group, and uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it is noteworthy that he, it gets flipped around because uh, she's, she's evidently the talker. Uh, so a couple things that uh, I think are noteworthy in just this first paragraph is uh, we've already got the persecution beginning, and this is a timing marker for us, right? Um, that the persecution has begun in Rome and Jews are being pushed out. And uh, Italy is just across the water from, from Greece there, so across they come. And uh, as a timing marker, we can see that we're approaching that 66 AD point, um, or 66 of the Common Era, um, where the Jews begin their, their first, uh, first revolt. We've got uh, two other things that I find noteworthy in this paragraph. Um, they start working, and uh, what drew them together is that they had the same trade. They're tent makers. I have heard, I won't call them a false teacher, but um, a, a teacher who um, tends to, uh, to connect dots that perhaps shouldn't be connected. Um, but his, uh, his teaching, who he is, is not relevant, but his teaching was that uh, the tent was actually tallits. And this guy's actually, Paul's actually making tallits. Uh, yeah. I've heard that, but I've also heard that in the Greek it has something to do with leather work. Yeah. Okay, and I, I haven't looked up the Greek tonight. And I haven't seen a leather tallit. I, right. <laughs> I've got a leather keeper, but not a leather tallit. Well, right. Either one of those sounds more logical than making tents, right? I mean, is that kind of odd business? I mean, I understand that we have yeah. some campers in our midst, but in, in first century? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're traveling like nomads. They need the, the kind of okay. stuff that will shelter them. And we're not talking tents here that are, you know, the big circus tent thing. Right. This would, you know. Yeah, right up there. That's road. exactly people right. Still you know, people are buying the tents today. I so. When I was in the Middle East, I saw a Mercedes parked next to a tent <laughs> right up there in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> there are some rich people in Saudi Arabia. Yes, indeed. So I think the last and, and I think the most important one, one I'd like to just get your comments on here is the very last line in that paragraph that for not nearly the first, second, or third time. We see that Paul is not only arguing Messiah in a synagogue to Jews, but to Jews and Greeks. So, 
that would be verse 4. So in, in this particular Bible, 1 through 4 is in a paragraph. It looks like it is in yours as well. That's what we call this little gap here. See this gap? That's what we're talking about. Now, if you've got every other line is a bit, well, you know, you don't, you don't get the paragraphs. It's okay. No big deal. So, I, I guess my point is that God-fearers, righteous converts, non-Jews seeking truth were being educated and spending time in Jewish synagogues. It didn't seem to be out of place. Um, second point that we see in the book of Acts and we're seeing here that even after non-Jews become convinced that the Jewish Messiah is God and can bring salvation, it's not like they stopped attending this Jewish, Jewish synagogues, right? So, again, to the focus of our study, from a halakhic perspective, it, I, I guess what I'm trying to point out is so far we are not seeing a separation between the Jew and the non-Jew for education purposes, right? It's not like, okay, so, you know, you 400 that just believed in Messiah Yeshua, Jews down in door number one over there, you non-Jews, we're going to take you out in the back because, um, you know, mm -hmm. really, I mean, you don't want to be in here. This is where the Jews are. It, it wasn't like that, right? right. You got, can you comment on that or kind of flush that out, Scott? Well, your point being, if they're not being separated for purposes of teaching, they must be being taught the same thing. Bingo. From a halakhic standpoint, here's how we walk out our faith. Yes. Theologically, yeah. we, we have an agreement. Now, how do we live out this right. theological agreement? Mm -hmm. And there it is. Yeah. This, this doesn't sound like every time a non-Jew shows up, they, they send out their little posse to go over and say, did you just move here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, trying to feel out whether or not you're yeah. a Jew or What's not. What's your last name? Yeah. yeah. Rosenberg? Do you want Seinfeld? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want Seinfeld? Yeah. Yeah. says he was reasoning in the synagogue to persuade the Greeks to leave the synagogue. Oh, that's the uh, <laughs> nearly inspired version there, is it? Yes. Not so inspired version. Not so inspired. Yeah. All right. Anything else? There? That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about the fact that they're apparently. It's interesting to me that the Jews, obviously, the, the, it's not fair to be categorical here. There are a not insignificant amount of Jews, or at least authoritative Jews, that are a real problem with Gentiles being part of the group. And, and yet, and, and they seem to have been based in our study and historically in Jerusalem with the leadership of. But they're scattered the across across the uh, the Asian Peninsula. I mean, every single time Paul goes somewhere, he gets in trouble, and it's with Jews, over mostly over the Gentiles. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I would argue that his message about Messiah is what's causing the angst. Well, I think, or or as we just saw, the jealousy 
that they're not going to have as much sway because the leader of the faith is not necessarily the leader of the synagogue anymore. So. I, I see, it seems to me that it most commonly occurs, the break seems to occur around the time when the number of Gentiles in the room gets bigger. Which is, and so my point that I'm trying to get disagree. at, my point disagree. that I'm trying to get at is that whether it's arguing over how you get into the faith and the family, whether it's the number of Gentiles is starting to get intimidating, whether it's because they're, he's convincing some of the more wealthy Gentiles to follow him, whatever it might be. Right. The point is, um, it seems to be tied to the Gentile issue. And yet, in spite of that, there is, to your point, not this rift right. between Jews in this room and Gentiles in that exactly. room. The Jews seem fine with the handful of Gentiles showing up to the building and sitting around and listening. Now, I don't know how they're handling um, how they would approach them halakhically, much like not unlike some of what we've experienced, where right. we've had some very uh, famous Jews who have been very supportive of us, appreciate what we're doing, but are kind of encouraging us not to do everything. Right, or they, they encourage us to be an example that the days of Messiah are, are coming soon, and no, I can't eat the food that you're making in your kitchen. Right, so I think that it seems, I mean, my assumption is that there's probably still some at least social division. Yeah. And yet, I think, you're, I think you're right, that there definitely seems to be a different approach, though, to the synagogue then than there is today, because to, to Gregory's point, um, there definitely is, uh, a, there, there is a lot more, um, isolation is the right word, but there's definitely a wall yeah. Oh, yeah. put up. There's a speed bump, and, and well, we don't see that here. Well, I think one of the biggest problems we run into today is there is, we, there's Christianity. That's basically the there difference. There isn't a you difference. You were either pagan yeah. or you were Jewish. Yes. And so Monotheism he, is in one place. So here it's weird. It's like, did you come to the wrong place? Like, this isn't Sunday. Like, why are you even here? I mean, it's, it's weird, basically, unless you're going to convert. Right. So there are three monotheistic religions today. Would we agree? Judaism, Christianity, mm -hmm. and Islam. 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 Right? So, we know when Judaism started on our walls with Adam in this corner, Noah in this corner, Abraham in this corner, we're pretty much starting here, which is 4,000 years before now. So, if we follow the wall, we get to the mountain, we get to King David, we get to Messiah, that back wall where the windows are, you just passed Confucius and some of that Eastern religion stuff. Islam isn't until where Joshua is sitting at six or seven hundred of the common era. So, to your point, there were only, or there's only one yeah, at this point. Christianity, I mean, what are we talking about? 200, 300? Yeah. Right? Maybe. Before you actually have a Roman church, Catholicism, right. and that kind of thing. Even you could even say that up until around 100, really, their Christianity, so to speak, is still a subset of Judaism. But well, yeah, and I wouldn't even call it Christianity. Yeah. Right. They were a temple. These believers we're talking about were a temple so sect, Jewish-led movement. Yes. Yeah. Um, it was, so, it, but yes, yeah, so to your point, I think the other issue to so the issue I think that Jews deal with a lot today, and I think there's more suspicion, is unfortunately, um, and it's not because well. Christianity has a very missionary-like reputation. Yeah. And well, that's not sure. entirely bad, 
The downside to that is that the assumption is if you're in my room, you either are converting to my religion or you're going to try to make me convert to yours. What's interesting about the Greeks here is, as far as they say, I don't, I'm not aware of very many evangelistic pagans. Right. So if they were showing up at the synagogue, especially given the stigma, anti-Semitism is rampant in the Roman Empire. So if they're showing up at the synagogues, that means they're serious about it. Yeah. Like they actually are genuinely interested in Judaism. And they, if maybe they won't convert, but they at least find some sort of spiritual enlightenment from it. And I and I think the God fear moniker that we've read earlier and a few other times mm -hmm. seems to be something that is causing them to potentially put up with the stigma mm -hmm. and the persecution and so forth. So from a historical perspective, let's make sure we understand that Judaism is being starting to be trounced because they are pushing back against the rough Roman rule, right? And they're being taxed dramatically, Fiscus Judaica in 47, 50, um, and eventually in 66, they revolt. We start to get a schism at this point because, unfortunately, some non-Jews in this time frame in Jerusalem were stepping away. We believe in Yeshua, but I am not Jewish. Okay. Mm -hmm. They want to pay the tax. Mm -hmm. I get it. Unfortunate. If we're going to be one in Messiah, if we've joined ourselves to Israel for salvation, we probably should join them for taxes too. You know, um, that left a bad taste mm -hmm. in, in the Jews' mouths. Um, for good reason, really. Absolutely. And then well, just the last point would be when, when the fighting actually broke out, oh, mm -hmm. the, the non-Jews did not generally fight with the, with the Jews. Um, this, this was a problem. And, and then uh, from that point, with the Jews with the bad taste in their mouth, didn't want to have the non-Jews in the synagogue now. Then we've got this, this pushback mm -hmm. and whatnot. And that's where you're, you're finding that the Jews are in the synagogue and Paul's there in the morning. And then after Havdalah, he's going to spend time with the non-Jews. And that's where he's going to preach and Eutychus is going to fall asleep and fall out of the window. You, then you? you yeah. So, the, thinking about it in the modern context, yeah. um, to your point, so obviously first century, to be with the Jews meant possibly persecution, at the very least some stigma. Right. So yep. if you're there... First century is before 100. We, we right. That, right? So, okay. So, so if you're there in the synagogue, you must be serious. That's right. And the Jews like you. and Because they don't have a lot of friends. Right. And apparently, whether you believe in Yeshua or not. Irrelevant. The point is, you're there supporting Jews. It's and great. And being counted among them. What's interesting is today, if you look at the... The, the rabbis who are the most friendly to Christians and who most appreciate people like us, it is the ones who are the most, some of the most supportive of Israel. Because one of the things that stands out is um, to be a Jew in America is relatively easy. Right. I mean, you know, God forbid there are still some times where there are horrific acts of anti-Semitism that is going up, so it's getting yeah. harder. All around the but world. there are millions of Jews in America who live a very comfortable, easy life that has all of the 
comforts of halakha, there's no issues, right? They don't need to live in Israel, so to speak. But the Israelis' experience in the world is very different. I mean, they are despised the world over from a lot of different places because of... Yeah, it's surrounded by Arabs who all hate them. But then on top of that, even in in a lot of places in Europe and uh, and in the United States, in some areas, like the U.S. overall loves Israel, um, there is is this stigma associated with the Israelis um, that is uh, really... Quite frankly, is a modern form of anti-Semitism. There's mm-hmm. not really a lot of other ways to get around it. Um, they're held to an insanely higher standard than any other country on the planet, and they're regularly degraded, chided, told that they don't own this part of the property, Jerusalem's not theirs, and so on and so forth. So when the Messianics and or Christians and or whatever we are, um, not only embrace Jewish elements of our faith, which is nice, but we actually embrace Israel, then you've got a similar uh, emotional bond, almost like it's back in an alliance, like yeah. the first century, where right, all right. of a sudden, so wait, it costs you something to be with us. Like we don't, like the, the Israeli Jewish community does not, um, doesn't counts their <laughs> their friends are not a big group. Right. So if you're part of the friends, that makes you special. And in, and in that regard, I think it's not a, a not surprising to me that some of the absolute most friendly rabbis that we've interfaced with are, are, are Israeli. Yeah. And I think that that, um, that rather, goes... Rather than the ones nearer to home. Right. Who, right, who have yeah. more issues yeah. because more there's, not a, there's not an emotional bond because we haven't proven ourselves to them. Right. They're still afraid we're trying to convert them. The Israeli Jews, they're thinking, if you were planning to convert us, you're taking a weird path because you're going to come join our side. There's not a lot of... You know, most people don't like us. That's right. So if you want to evangelize the world, you might as well hate us and go talk to the rest of the planet. But if you're going to hang out with us, that makes you special. So I think that that, this ironically enough, in a weird way, this is our opportunity to make tikkun on the first century. Mm-hmm. This is our chance to go back to the Gentiles that ran away from Fiscus Judaicus and said, no, I'm not with the Jews. Right. And it's our opportunity to, to bring healing by being supportive of I them. I like that. that is, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful uh, idea. And, you know, it rings true. It, it, it rings true to what happened and, and what's happening to us. Um, I, I was uh, telling Jonathan before we started about a visit from one of these Israeli rabbis, conservative, orthodox, um, and, and his help with my tefillin and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we had deliberately set out to not share Messiah with him. Told him we didn't want, you know, we weren't, didn't have him here for that. We're concerned about that topic. And I think our willingness to not constantly press that point and focus more on the unity we have in the practicing of our faith is relieving to them. You know, and uh, it, it works. I like it, and I love that parallel in the tikkun. Yeah, that, that's, that's excellent. It was a thought back to your comments about that schism that was going on. Uh, the other thing I was thinking of was how the the very fact that creation that that Christianity was was a new thing was automatically meant that that was like a replacement theology. That's right. You know, like nowadays we sort of see replacement theology alongside supersessionism and a couple other things but back then by definition it was replacement theology because there wasn't anything before so if you created something new that means you're replacing what we have 
And so that, I think, causes, it's another thing to keep in mind nowadays to remember that that's also something that's stuck with the Jews all throughout history is that Christianity has always been the other religion. Right, it's other, other than, than Judaism. Judaism. Yeah. That's right. And so at First Suit Design and, and other organizations, and of course like our community, we try to stay away as much as we can from, from either label right. and focus more on the things that, that unify us, which is the Torah, Judaism, the Messiah. Traditions. Yeah. The fact that Messiah, we, we are hoping that he's coming soon. Exactly. You know. Um, you're, you're, you're right, and I, I like to think that that's healthy, you know. We can, we can argue anything we want, but sometimes it's better to make sure that there's an understanding of what we have in common before we start talking about what we don't have in common. Mm -hmm. And then, like you're discussing earlier, find out that there's more in common than you think. Right. <laughs> right. When you start discussing what's not in common. Right. And, and just because I, I mean, the, the, what you're saying, I mean, Jews are dealing with an enormous amount of emotional baggage on Christianity. We've been really, really bad to Jews over yeah. the last couple thousand years. Yeah. And um, we, I mean, we, we kill them if they won't convert. And sometimes, even if they want to convert, we don't want to have them. And 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 to, I mean, to the, even even beyond that, I think that one thing that modern Christianity doesn't perhaps recognize because um, there's there's a there's a distancing from some of the non um, from well, it's not a crusade type thing, so it's easy to put some distance there. But I mean, Jews somewhat rightly recognize Nazi Germany as a Christian entity. I mean, it's kind of a shocking thing to say, but the reality is that the Lutheran Church of Germany was alive with Hitler. Hitler used Martin Luther as part of his arguments against the Jews. So the... Um, well, Martin Luther was... A lot of anti semitism at least yeah. at the end of his life. Yeah. So the point is to say that, like, you know, if you, if you have that, that's fresh. I mean, we're not talking about... Sometimes I think for us, it's like, the Crusades were 800 years ago. It wasn't my... Not even my religion, you know? But, I mean, a Protestant body of, a, of an entire nation essentially said... Yeah, we can we can slaughter all the Jews in our country. That's fine, right. you know. And so like that 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 is hanging in the background. So when you're dealing with Jews, that that there's a lot to get through. It, it wasn't a, but a hundred years prior to that that every country in Europe said to the Jews, "You got to get out. If you don't get out, we're going to kill you." England started. France, Spain. I mean, why did Columbus leave when he left? The night before the edict that all Jews had to leave Spain, Columbus set sail. It's a lot a, of people wonder. And so, I'm just, my point being is that like there has you have got to go into a relationship with Jewish people with a lot of patience, a lot of humility, and then where you can make those connections and those bonds is really obviously the place to start because you're having to win over a lot of this distrust, a lot of earned distrust. Well, I, I agree, and I think in a lot of cases we may need to forsake publicly some of the things that they are holding on to. Those grudges, you know, well, you Christians want to, hang on a second, let's, let's not lump me in <laughs> right. with stuff that 
I probably disagree with too, you know, so, yeah. I was just uh, listening to this book this morning that was talking about how you can't really, you know, sometimes you don't have a, a particular skill set that's going to make you the greatest, but there is like this category of, of things that you can do that you can always be better at because there's not really a cap on it. And it's like this idea of like emotional um, qualities, right? And so uh, th this particular author was using the example of like, you know, it's, it's pretty unlikely that you'll ever be as good as like a Michael Jordan. But you, you could be someone, and he used the example of like a Julia Roberts or somebody, like a, a poli famous politician, somebody that is excellent with people, you know? And one of the things I was thinking about when it came to that was in our discussions with, with rabbis and with Jewish people, you know, there, we, we might not be able to out-Bible them because especially the, the, the rabbis. I mean, and you've said this many times, don't argue with the rabbi, right? But the, the thing that Yeshua has taught us that we can do is basically out-love them, you know? You like out, outdo them in kindness and in charity and in, in love, basically. And he says, that will be the mark. That'll be the mark. And, and yeah, so anyway, I, I thought that was, that was, a, was a good point and something yeah. made, you know, that those are the things that we do have control over. That's right. Yeah, I, I wonder the summation the uh, distillation of the commandments by Hillel as well as the master as well as by Kiva was love God and love your neighbors yourself so I wonder if when the master says that the love will be the mark and you need to outdo one another in love, well, how do I love my neighbor? How do I love you? Isn't that what God teaches me in the commandments? How to love him and how to love you. So, once again, back to Moses' statement that keeping the commandments will cause the nations to see our life and glorify God and in the master's perspective it's going to bring glory to him so I, I like it I, I think that uh, we should study more and and live it out better I think it's that when we're loving God and we're loving others that people see the peculiarity of who we are in this world and they start to ask questions well why do you do that mm -hmm. and then they see different things about your walk and why do you wear a kippah well you're are you jewish right no and what would make you think i'm jewish right <laughs> and and so you it can also let them be like the bereans and go back and right. look over right. the scriptures themselves yeah. good stuff Okay. Um, I think uh, Red Letter Day, you were mentioning this a couple of lessons ago, where we've, we've got this the first time where Paul says, that's it. I'm, I'm going to go to the Gentiles now. And he, he does a very similar thing, and I, the shook out his garments. 
your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. This is the second time he said that, right? So, um, but it, it, it seems to have come to a boil where he's, he's like, gosh, I, I'm so ticked. So, uh, Which, again, it's overly simplistic and, quite frankly, is, is a temporary thing. He does it by jurisdiction, not by general, generality. I mean, the next line says... He left there with the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, presumably, I was a Gentile based on that name. His house was next door to the synagogue. Yeah. Crispus, Mine the, says he's a God-fearer. Yeah. yeah. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, we can only assume was Jewish, Right. believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So Paul's not saying, you know, forget the Jews. They can all burn. You know, he's, he's saying, you here... I'm done arguing with you. I'm going over here. Right. And if you agree with me, then come hang out with me. But I'm, I'm finished. And that's totally different from, you know, I mean, I don't know what... Thankfully, my Bible doesn't have a breakup here, but this is the place where you see those little, you know, extra-biblical title yeah, headlines. Yeah, yeah. You know, Paul... Paul hates Jews. Yeah, something like yeah. that. <laughs> Leaves Jerusalem forever kind of thing. Yeah, I, th that's my point, is that this is his second time he's saying this, and it, it, it seems to be very focused on where and when and the events and so forth. Um, so, upon hearing, many were believing and being immersed, and then you you come through to uh, the next section here. He stays a year and a half. That's, that's a long time. You know, that's, that's amazing. And uh, he's already had this uh, vision in the night saying, Many people in this city are for me, and that's um, that's interesting. It, it's not Jews, it's not non-Jews. It's generic. It's just people. I wasn't sure this would be a clue or a hint at all to perhaps some of the corruption that we've seen throughout the synagogues. To specifically point out that the ruler of the synagogue was a man of the Lord. Like, is that not a given already? I was kind of wondering about that. Like, how you believed in the Lord, and he's he's the ruler of the synagogue. Like, I well, I didn't know if maybe so what, what that was that maybe someone like like sort of a uh, not to do with the synagogue specifically, but somebody that was like sort of a a uh, like an additional sort of person that just sort of managed the synagogue. I, I don't know. Like, how, what? How do you interpret the Lord there? I, I think that's that's a key. Yeah. I think that's key to what your. I mean, we've got what your point is. We've got the Gentile who's mentioned first, and he's a he's a God fearer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you have the leader of the synagogue, and as Joshua pointed out, it's probably a good bet he is a Jew. Yeah. So what does it mean that he believed in the Lord? Yeah. Who, who is the Lord? In other words, I think is the question to, to get to get to your the answer that you need. I think you first need to answer that question. You first need to answer the question of who is the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Since I mean, it says together with his entire household, it sounds like there was a transformation from 
to Yeshua. Bingo. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. He would be specifically. He would be the. He would be the Lord. Lord. I got, I got yeah. you. Okay. I got yeah. you. Yeah. So he, then that would be unique. Right. Okay. What would be unique? The fact that the a ruler Jew, of this synagogue, a Jew, was he and his entire household was believing in Yeshua. I would say that would be unique. I haven't seen... Or at least this or far it's away. it's transformational. It's... Yeah. Right? It, far from home. Yeah. Maybe not as... I just want to make sure I understand places. where we're coming from. The fact that Jews believe in Yeshua... Oh, no, no. That's is, not unusual. It's not unusual. No, no. You're saying... The level. The, the top the, guy. Yeah. We've got a leader right. of Jews. Okay. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. In and fact, I don't know that there's another reference to the leader of a synagogue who believes aside from this guy. So. so that is, it's a yeah. big deal. Mm. It is. Which is probably why that it seems to me pretty soon. Well, I guess not pretty soon after this, but later on when they get all mad and upset, they they drag out. Um, yeah, they whoever was the. Jason. Uh, that was Jason, but then later it says when they go to. Um, to later, after the year and six months, this is a well long after the family's been. There's apparently, I guess, either a new ruler of the synagogue or that same guy has a Greek name, Sosthenes. In verse 17, it says they see they all see Sosthenes, oh, the yeah. ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. So, um, it seems to be a pretty, uh, I would say, a pretty big deal <laughs> that he's following Yeshua here. Hmm. Yeah. Because the Jewish leaders in 12 make a united attack against Paul. So, right. yeah, I would imagine it is. It, I, I don't think that the synagogue leader is necessarily a Bible scholar. They're not here. They're the ones who give the most money, the ones who are most influential, mm. the ones who have friends in high places and can, can get things done. Could be the guy that built the thing, you know. Um, but there's no question, and I think to your point, he's a player. Mm-hmm. He's a player. It's and not yet, the guy that stands at the pulpit during the whole gathering and could talks. Be, does the does the announcements and all that? Yeah. All right. Well, we're uh, we're just. Uh, that is interesting about whether it's the same guy with a different name or a different guy. Well, it's a different town. Now, now they're in a cave. Well, I wondered about uh, Sosthenes as well, and does he die here? Because later in First Corinthians, it is, and from brother Sosthenes, yeah. is Joel. Yeah. Is it the same guy? Is it, it a is, common yeah. name? It, <clears throat> it kind of makes me wonder if he, I'm just, uh, to your point, if he's the same one as Crispus earlier? I don't think so. It's a different town. Is no, it a K? Is it, is it K a town or a region? Either way, there's, you know, this is a big city. There's more than one synagogue. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So. Sure. But that means we, in that scenario, we're actually pulling in two rulers of synagogues right. yeah. within a right. fairly short yeah. radius. So. Um, well, he Paul was there a year and a half. I mean, the guy's, a, pretty, the guy's a preacher. Boy. That's true. Yeah. yeah. But that's a pretty big deal. I think the fact that he's there for a year and a half helps me better understand the uh, irritation of the Book of First Corinthians. I guess we'll get to that later, but. It's like Paul's going, come it's, on, it's, guys. It's I'm, I'm it's hanging out in Ephesus for like two weeks. They're doing so much better yeah, than you. I mean, right. <laughs> I was there for a year and a half. Well, Corinth, Corinth is not a good place, right? Right, true. Corinth is a seaport, and talk about pagan city. This, yeah. this is the St. Louis, Mardi Gras, 
everyday New Orleans. Orleans. Yeah, New Orleans. 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 Big one. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Sorry about that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I'd, I knew so I'd heard. Sorry for anyone. See him come halfway out of the channel. <laughs> yeah. I knew I had heard of St. Louis. I've seen folks in St. Louis. Yeah. Casinos. All right. So we finish up just in uh, one more verse. Paul, having stayed many more days, said farewell to the brethren and set sail to Syria. And with him, here it is, flipped. Priscilla and Aquila. Then at Centuria, Paul had his hair cut off for he was keeping a vow. And I, I tried to uh, kind of give you a heads up there on, on how that was done. The Nazarite vow, there is really only one vow in the scriptures. Uh, Numbers chapter 15, I'm thinking, yeah? 15? Numbers 15? Oh, you Bible scholars? Numbers 15, isn't it? Everybody just nod. Yeah, it makes yeah. me feel good. No, it's full. I thought it was 15. What do I know? Is this why he goes to Jerusalem afterwards? Or is yeah. that Yeah, and so you'll, we'll find out later the, that he's, he's rushing for the to get to Jerusalem. Yeah, for the Nazarite vow, but he needs to... Yeah, and normally it would be... Number six? Thank you. Um, normally it would be started... Well, it is always started by cutting your hair. It's ended by cutting your hair. Um, but traditionally it was started on a festival and ended on a festival. This could give us yet another timing marker um, that, you know, perhaps it was some type of festival. It's odd that he would get his haircut there in Centria, not before he left or something like that. He was there for a year and a half. Um, so if, if he was there for whatever festival it was, later we'll see that he's, he's pacing, trying to get there in time. And, of course, that's going to be another whole ball of wax. So. Cool. Good stuff. I'm, I'm hoping that you're seeing that Paul is in a town, preaches, people turn to Messiah Yeshua. There's some type of an uprising by people that show up or by people in the town. And he, he either has to leave or they need to deal with it in some way. We started uh, in Antioch and he's got to go down to Jerusalem and they're hashing out whether or not non-Jews can God bless you be a part of Judaism without ritual conversion what's their halakhic mandate from day one and so forth he then goes further and then folks show up presumably from Antioch he goes further and it's just the persecution and the argument against his message follows and he either goes back and argues again or writes a letter to correct or encourage what happens. And we're seeing these letters of the places almost right after he visits. So that's why we're doing, we just, I mean, just did Thessalonica and then went to the more normal-minded folks a couple of miles down the road to Berea. That's why we're reading now his letter to the Thessalonians, which seems to be chronologically when this would have been written. Um, he doesn't have a whole lot of time left. You know, we're, we're in the second missionary journey now. He only did a third one and ends up in Rome and dies there. So, Roman prison, yes? We don't have a book of Bereans, a right. letter of Bereans. Right, noble-minded, yeah. But there is a website. 
Good stuff. All right. Well, we didn't have anybody chiming in on the uh, chat. I was actually watching this time, but uh, maybe uh, maybe next time. So <clears throat> next week we'll do First Thessalonians. The following week is Pentecost, and uh, I know that uh, Shavuos, right? Um, or Shavuot, depending where you're from. Um, Easter weeks. My. <laughs> My, uh, my son-in-law and his, uh, his wife, my son-in-law and, and my daughter, my son-in-law and his wife have opened their home um, for the community. I guess anybody who's listening and anybody who's here is more than welcome to come. Um, so that we won't have class two weeks from tonight because presumably we'll all be at uh, Joshua's home. And uh, Joshua, you want to give us a little heads up on what we're doing there? Isn't it, uh, is it Book of Ruth time? So yes, yeah, so Shavuot, or Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, whichever flavor you want to go with, um, is the holiday that marks the beginning of the first harvest. Um, but it's also traditionally the day that we receive the Torah. So we want, number one, we want to spend some time studying uh, the scriptures. Um, number two, traditionally, because of the harvest time frame, uh, we read the book of Ruth, which begins around the same time. If you go and look at the chronology of the book, the, the book of Ruth has to do with uh, the harvest as well. So. We read the book of Ruth. We're going to do that. It'll, be, it'll probably be fairly quick. Um, the non-Jew who right. joins yourself. It's a very cool story talking about nice. um, people like us. Uh, and then um, we're going to break out and focus on some specific discussion questions. We've sent some of them out to, um, uh, for those of you who got an email invitation, if you're just listening to it by audio, uh, as an example, one of the things we wanted to discuss is uh, what does modern day taking care of the poor look like? The Book of Ruth is very famous for how um, Boaz does that. Um, he does a very good job um, and follows the scriptures beyond the letter. Uh, but you know, of course, unless you unless you have a field today and you're handing out to the poor people who happen to be walking by, um, it's very difficult to figure out what that looks like in a modern context. So that would be an interesting point to discuss. So the plan is to have um, a little bit of time set aside for several different topics. Um, Judaism traditionally stays up studying all night. I am not planning to do that, no but if you happen to want to stay later than I want to be awake, you just lock the door on your way out. But we, um, yeah, we're going to get together. We're going to have uh, asking people who come to bring a dessert or some sort of snack. Um, so we eat our dinner, then come over to your house with dessert? Yes. And bring the Book of Ruth? Yes, or memorize the whole thing before you come. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> now reciting from memory, chapter two. Thank you, Jennifer. All right. Questions, comments? You want to close this in prayer? I know you've been practicing. Daily. There you go. Thank you, Lord, again for bringing us together to study your word and worship you. Fill us with your spirit. Bless this week as we go out. Mm to our workplaces so let us be a light thank you shine through us thank you Lord in Yeshua's holy name Amen, Amen. Amen. I would remind you guys uh, in closing that uh, 
We are counting the Omer according to the command of God. And uh, we've got uh, counting we can do right now for the 36th day. Um, but I do think that uh, it would be wise to just start uh, just a little bit of a tradition of noting, if you will, the 40th day. The 40th day of the Omer clearly is the day when our Master called his disciples out onto the Mount of Olives, said, I'm taking the next bus out of town, stay here, won't be many days, you're going to get power from on high, and that in fact was the Shavuot or Feast of Weeks or Pentecost that we're celebrating, but it was then that he gave what appears to be the ironic blessing and was lifted up before their eyes. So um, making note of that, I think, and doing something, even acknowledging it in your family, um, is important. Woohoo! Okay, uh, bear with me. Hayom Shisha Ushloshim Yom Shahim. Kamisha Shavuot Yom Echad Ba'omer Harakaman Hu Yakazir Avodat Beit HaMikdash Limkoma Bimheira Bayamenu Amen Sela and for those of you listening along that haven't studied that, bless you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us regarding the canon of the Omer. Today is 36 days, which are five weeks and one day of the Omer. We are reading this week. That's the Omer. <laughs> that's the Omer, there, yeah. Um, that's exactly what it is, 36 days of the Omer. Um, since it's five weeks in one day, we are reading and studying the fifth chapter of the uh, Pirkei Avot, the Ethics of the Fathers, um, which is the is one of the something of the Mishnah, Saviors of the Mishnah, Orders of the Mishnah. It's one of the orders of the Mishnah. The compassionate one may he return for us the service of the temple to its place speedily in our days. Amen. Selah. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate your uh, appreciate your study. I understand that you have.